Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk about Ukraine today and bring the story home to here in Detroit. Terrell Dumaine Starr grew up here in Detroit. And he's on the ground in Ukraine covering the Russian invasion. We'll talk about his view of the war and how his history here influences his reporting. And then Aaron Reddish will join us from Wayne State University to talk about this Russian invasion, what it means in an international context. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WD. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, I'm glad you've decided to join us. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've been hearing story after story about the strength and the determination of the Ukrainian people who are deciding to fight back. We're getting those stories, though, thanks to a bravery and dedication of a different kind that of journalists who've decided to stay in Ukraine to show the world what's happening there. One of those journalists who's getting a lot of attention right now is originally from right here in Detroit. Terrell Germain Starr writes for Rolling Stone and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's also the host of the Black Diplomats podcast, which explores politics, foreign affairs, and travel from a black perspective. He's gained a really huge audience on both social media and traditional media in recent weeks, and we are trying to get in touch with him right now in Ukraine. We had him on the line, and uh, of course you can imagine that uh, things there are a little bit chaotic. Uh, he has just dropped off the line, but we are going to talk with Terrell Jermaine Starr as soon as we get him back on, uh, on our air here. Meanwhile, we do want to talk about Ukraine today for the entire show, talk about what is going on on the ground uh, in that country as the Russian invasion continues and what it means in the sort of global context, what is happening uh, around the world as a result of the Russian decision to invade. Uh, right now, while we are still trying to get uh, Terrell Jermaine Starr back on the line, I want to welcome another voice to the conversation. Aaron Reddish is a history professor at Wayne State University who specializes in Soviet and Russian history. He, he joins us pretty frequently to talk about uh, Russian, Russian issues. Uh, Aaron, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So you and I talked uh, late last week, and you said at that point that the invasion had been, quote, a, a horrible experience for you as someone who watches and studies this region and its history. So what has stood out to you in the past week as Ukrainians have done their best to hold off these Russian advances? Uh, the sheer loss of life of the civilian casualties 
uh, and um, I mean, just the complete destruction of um, um, many of the major cities of Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. That's on the one hand, uh, and we can't. And all I'm just the the massive movement of peoples. I mean, it's a humanitarian crisis. Uh, on the other hand, is uh, any hope of reform within Russia um, seems to be not as the Russian government has become even more authoritarian and even more oppressive. Um, so it is, uh, it is very difficult uh, to, to see what's going on. Mm. And the, the difficulty that Russia seems to be having invading a much smaller country with a much weaker military, at least on paper, is, is one of the things that I think is really starting to stand out. And I, I'm wondering frequently how that ought to change our assessment of Russia and the Russian threat, not just to the former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe, but to the, the, the Russian place, I guess, in the world and the idea of Russia as a, as a superpower. Um, this is this is something that should have gone much easier for them, it seems. And I think we're learning something about uh, the internal workings, I guess, not just of the Russian military, but of, of that country um, while we watch this. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we can look at silver linings, and one of them is the uh, heroic resistance of everyday Ukrainians um, fighting um a much stronger russian army uh i mean it's just it's uh it's inspiring um you know the the problems of the russian army i guess we should have we should have seen it coming because uh we saw problems with their fighting actually in syria we saw it in georgia as well uh although uh georgia went much quicker um you know the 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 issue is that there, we don't know the details, um, so it's it's possible that Russia is holding back. I'm just not sure. So one of the weird mysteries of the invasion so far is that Russia is not using um, fixed wing aircraft as much as we thought that they would, uh, and there isn't a good explanation for that. So it's possible that they will increase. Um, increase their military uh, presence even more, engage in even more indiscriminate uh, bombing of civilian targets. Uh, but you're right. I mean, they are running out of fuel. Uh, Russian soldiers are reportedly breaking into grocery stores to get food. Um, there, um, there are trucks that are breaking down, getting stuck in the mud. Um, they are not being able to advance as, as quickly as they should be able to. Um, and it goes back to the question of um, how strong the Russian army is. Is it just a regional power? Um, the problem is that they also have uh, leading technological military weapons and uh, nuclear weapons. And when when we think about them in that context, I mean, when, when you and I talk about Russia, as we do from time to time, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the conversation is still cast in the the idea of them being the other, the, the kind of opposite of 
of uh, the United States' uh, place as a superpower, that, that it is still a, a competitor, I guess, um, uh, globally in, in terms of military might and, and economic power. Uh, should we be thinking of them differently, I guess, uh, because of because of what we're seeing right now? That That's both a question about potentially not th- seeing them as much of a threat, but, but also potentially seeing them as a less stable threat. In other words, that, that, um, the, the desperation that right. could, could be taking hold because of, of these problems, um, you know, could make them more, more unpredictable, I guess, uh, as a global actor. Right. So, um, there is this, uh, you know, I think a lot of us still see the world and kind of in the shadow of the Cold War. And, um, and I think a lot of foreign policy thinkers also see it that way. Uh, but, um, you know, for a long time, Russia has not been a strong power, uh, even if Putin has tried to portray Russia as a global uh, power. Um, there's there are kind of two other things to take out of this is one is that this uh, for this conflict with Ukraine is not about kind of reconstructing the Soviet Union for Putin. It's about bringing in the, the Slavic peoples. Mm-hmm. at the same time. It's also about fighting back NATO. So there you kind of have this Cold War echo again mm-hmm. uh, where Russia sees itself as as the victim. Um, But you're not going to see the same Cold War divisions like you did before. And um, this this idea of desperation is is kind of spot on that Putin had been really risk averse uh, to start a major war, start a major conflict. And now, I mean, with the full out invasion of Ukraine, Something has changed, and it is this desperation um, that is very scary. Because at the end of the Cold War, um, you know, from the 60s on, there was at least some type of stability uh, in this uh, in this uh, face-to-face conflict between the, the Soviets and the, and the United States and the West. And um, you don't have that stability anymore right now. I'm talking with uh, Aaron Reddish, a history professor at Wayne State University who specializes in Soviet and Russian history. We are waiting and efforting uh, for a connection with uh, Terrell Germain Starr, who is a journalist and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's also host of the Black Diplomats podcast. He's one of the people on the ground in Ukraine who has been getting an awful lot of attention uh, on social and traditional media for the coverage that he's uh, that he's offering from Ukraine. Uh, we are going to talk to him about his background here in Detroit and how that influences the way he's covering uh, the Russian invasion. We're pretty excited about this conversation and really anticipating uh, the time when uh, we can get Terrell back on the line. We had him earlier in in the show and we lost the connection. I think you can imagine the level of chaos in in Ukraine right now and the difficulty 
getting phone connections or internet connections out to uh, to the rest of the world. So we're trying to, to put that all back together so that we can talk with Terrell. Uh, meanwhile, we want to hear from you as well about what you make of what's going on uh, in Ukraine. Uh, what are you thinking and feeling as you watch these images of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, what questions do you have about what people are going through there on the ground, the tremendous suffering that we've already seen the Ukrainian people enduring because of uh, the Russian invasion. What do you think of the U.S. international and international response so far? Are we doing the things that we should be doing to try to discourage this invasion or turn it back? Uh, what would you be willing to see us do uh, to, to, to get involved? To, to what extent would you like to see us get involved? to stop the Russian invasion. Uh, we especially want to hear from you, of course, if you're Ukrainian or have connections to Ukraine or Russia. That is, of course, a big part of our community here in Southeast Michigan. There are lots of folks who have uh, connections to that part of the world. We would love to hear what you're hearing from your loved ones in that area and what you think about what's going on. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter, and uh, we can include you in the conversation uh, uh, that way. Uh, again, we especially want to hear from folks who are really connected to uh, that, that part of the world. Uh, we want to give voice to, to, to that part of this story. Uh, let's start today with Anthony in southwest Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Stephen. Yeah, I think it's uh, turbulent times. And uh, uh, I just think, you know, in the age of social media, we have the ability to kind of see this conflict differently and through a first-person lens almost uh, – huh that, you know, it wasn't filtered through the media in the past, but it's, yeah, we're experiencing this conflict a bit differently than all previous conflicts. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, that's a really interesting uh, observation, Anthony. And, and I have also been kind of taking note of the way that the reporting goes uh, because of, because of social media. I, I guess my fear um, is the danger of misinformation, which there are people who are really dedicated to spreading um, and the ease with which they can do it on on social media. Uh, the, the, that, to me, is kind of a downside of, of the ease of this. But I think for the most part, you're right, that we're getting to see things that uh, we hadn't before. Uh, Aaron, I wonder if you can talk about the misinformation and disinformation campaign that the Russians have undoubtedly uh, undertaken as part of this invasion, and and how difficult it is, I guess, to sort sort to sort out what's actually happening from uh, from what they would like us to think is happening. Yeah, um, the social media aspect is, I mean, it's overwhelming. I I think for those in the United States trying to get an uh, understanding of what's going on, it can almost seem kind of overwhelming uh, because you get so many details. Uh, but it is really hard to separate fact from fiction. I mean, there actually is, there's some disinformation from, <clears throat> from Ukraine. Um, in the early days, there was an uh, image of a downing of a Russian military, um, of a, of a plane that we found out was false. But the Russian disinformation is, um, astonishing. 
Um, there is, I think, just today, um, the um, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, said that Russia had not uh, was not in Kharkiv, and they showed an image of Kharkiv from 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, uh, clearly, they're trying to. Well, I mean, they're they're lying. Uh, <laughs> the Russian news is um, kind of filled with this uh, kind of this propaganda, um, talking about humanitarian stories, um, human rights stories, the, the evils of, of the Ukrainian government. Uh, and then they're also, Russia's also cracking down on independent news and trying to curtail uh, its social media uh, platforms, um, which is really making it hard for everyday Russians to see what's going on. Um, while at the same time, interestingly, uh, hackers seem to also be taking down or disrupting Russian official websites mm-hmm. uh, over the last week. Um, so it is really difficult to get a um, kind of a full picture about what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Aaron Reddish right now, history professor at Wayne State University, about what's going on in Ukraine. We are continuing to try to get uh, Terrell Jermaine Starr, the journalist uh, for Rolling Stone and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, who is on the ground in Ukraine, trying to get him back with us here on Detroit Today to talk about what he's seeing, what he's reporting, and of course, his background here in the city of Detroit and how that influences how he's covering the war. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Karen in Dearborn, Jim in Gross Point Woods will get to you next if you want to join us. Talk about what's going on in Ukraine. Talk about what that means to your perception of Russia as a an equivalent superpower to the United States, talk about Russian aggression and uh, what we ought to be doing about it, both from the United States and the international perspective, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Talking about Ukraine today on the show and the Russian invasion of Ukraine that is still unfolding. Uh, we're talking about what that means uh, in terms of Russian aggression and uh, Russian politics and its economy, but also talking about what it means in, in the international context. What should the world be doing to stop the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine? How far should NATO be going? How, sh- how far should the United States be thinking about going to to push the Russians back with to within their own borders. We are also uh, anticipating a conversation with uh, someone who has become an important voice on the ground in Ukraine. 
uh, telling us about what is happening there. Terrell Germain Starr is a journalist who writes for Rolling Stone and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. He's also host of the Black Diplomats podcast and a Detroit native. Uh, we are anticipating reestablishing a connection with uh, Terrell, who was there in Ukraine covering the war. Uh, we had him with us, and uh, the connection uh, then dropped. I think you can probably imagine that it's very difficult uh, to communicate with people inside Ukraine right now uh, because of the war. We are hoping to reestablish that, that, that connection, though, uh, and talk with Terrell just a bit about what he's seeing, what he's covering, and, of course, uh, what is going on uh, in his mind as he sees all this, uh, given his background here in the city of Detroit. Really great conversation I'm, I'm anticipating with Terrell, and I'm, of course, hoping uh, quite strongly that we're able to reestablish that connection. Meanwhile, we also want to hear from you about what you think about what's going on in Ukraine. These images that you see all day, every day, if you're watching cable news uh, of the Russians trying to invade uh, Ukraine, trying to topple the government there and probably install uh, their own their own controllable uh, authorities. Uh, what what do you make of what they're doing? What do you make of the difficulty that they've had so far in actually uh, carrying off this this invasion? Also, what do you make of the U.S. response? We heard President Joe Biden talk quite a bit about Ukraine in his State of the Union speech earlier this week. What did you think about what he said? What do you think about what we're doing, uh, both as the United States and in the international community, to respond to what Russia is uh, is up to in Ukraine? As always, uh, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag us. And uh, we'll work you into the conversation that, that way. We also are really emphasizing um, uh, the, the the voices of people who have roots in this part of the world. Uh, are you someone whose parents or grandparents came here from uh, from Ukraine? Are, are you somebody who maybe came from Ukraine yourself? Of course, that's a very large community here in uh, southeast Michigan. Uh, tell us what you're hearing from uh, your relatives. Tell us what you're hearing from people back, um, you know, back in in the old country uh, about about what's going on. And tell us how concerned you are with uh, what the Russians are doing. Uh, again, 313-577-1019, 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, let's go next to Jim in Gross Point Woods. Jim, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, uh, uh, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I, we absolutely can. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a veteran. I served uh, three years in what was then uh, West Germany, an armored cavalry unit. Uh, I've also, I'm also a member of Veterans for Peace and a group within Veterans for Peace, uh, the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project that likes to point out the links between militarism and, uh, and climate change. And what was, you know, the tragedy... That's occurring now in Ukraine uh, by this, you know, vicious uh, aggression. Uh, it's also a tragedy for the world. I mean, Barry, you know, this last week was the report by the IPCC again pointing out, you know, uh, how bad uh, 
you know, the, the state of uh, climate is, is occurring. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to point out there's numerous studies of people that do this for a living have pointed out that as nations spend more on the military, their, their emissions also go up. Uh, and, you know, with the, the announcement that West, uh, Germany is going to be tripling their, uh, their military uh, uh, budget and other NATO nations are going to do it. And there's calls in Congress for even increasing the bloated budget of the, of the U.S. military. And we want to point out, you know, Putin is afraid of NATO, but he's also probably concerned that the United States spends 10 times more on its military than Russia does. And I'll sort of stop there. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Jim, I, I really love that you called and, uh, and injected that into the conversation. Aaron Reddish, uh, what's, what's your response to what Jim's talking about here? Well, it is this point right now where countries uh, are kind of reconsidering their relationship to uh, to military spending. So we see in uh, Germany uh, has shifted, right, in a 180-degree turn toward actually uh, arming, right, to actually um, sending arms uh, to Ukraine. Um, I mean, there there is an increased idea that Russia is uh, an, an enemy. Um, this is, though, I think um, this is a short-term issue. Uh, the the other thing that that Jim mentioned was the relationship to climate, and you know there should be. And I would say this in kind of two ways. One is that there are uh, concerns about. Um, radioactivity around mm-hmm. Chernobyl mm-hmm. Uh, with the Russian advance on uh, disrupting uh, the area around Chernobyl. Uh, but there's another part of this, uh, and that is um, kind of the world's dependence on uh, fossil fuels, right, on uh, oil and, and natural gas that Russia still supplies Western Europe, actually right now is still supplying uh, Western Europe with um much of its natural gas. So this is going to push uh, Europe and hopefully the United States towards thinking about alternatives to uh, to fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Jim, I really appreciate the call uh, and the thoughtful the thoughtful uh, comments. Um, I want to go to another uh, voice that from that part of. The world uh, right now. Uh, Brian Melford is a U.S. born, longtime resident of Ukraine and a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. He is in uh, he is in Poland right now, but has been on the ground in uh, Ukraine for some time. Um, Brian, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on the show, and thanks for your attention on this. So, so Brian, um, give us a sense of what you've seen over the last week as the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, has unfolded, and as the Ukrainian people have been fighting back to to protect their their own country from uh, this invasion. Sure, uh, you know, first of all. Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation and 
already the the body counts are going at a rate uh, which has exceeded uh, what, you know what Russia lost in uh, any war in any any period of time since World War II. Uh, that makes sense because it's the largest troop movement in, in Europe since World War II as well. So Russia has attacked Ukraine um, without provocation, uh, without reason, um, and it's not only soldiers, uh, but it's also uh, destroying civilians. Um, you know, I've lived in Ukraine for 22 years. I uh, have a business there. And, uh, you know, I spend my day talking to friends, to, to colleagues, to try to get them to safety. And that's that's my day. We, we, I've been sleeping two, three hours a night for uh, since the war began. Mm. And the rest of the time, I'm spending that trying to get people to safety, uh, you know, directing them where there's, you know, food, water, shelter, uh, a, a bus going to Western Ukraine or to Poland, these sorts of things. So, um, <clears throat> the, the, the tragedy that is, that is being unleashed uh, on Ukraine uh, is is just outrageous. But it's it's not a, not a, you know not enough just to say, hey, it's bad and gosh golly. But um, you know, it has to be stopped. Hmm. And uh, what's what's great, I mean, the great news about it is that you, Vladimir Putin never expected the Ukrainian people to fight so hard to protect their homeland. Uh, he assumed that uh, eh, Russia, Ukraine, all the same, and uh, he's getting a bloody nose right now in Ukraine uh, as more than 9,000 Russian troops have died during this first week of, of, of a battle. Uh, Ukrainians are fighting uh, in regions that were uh, even Putin considered they're, well, they're Russian-speaking, so therefore they must be Russian. No, Ukraine is a different nation, always has been. And so the Ukrainian people from Kharkiv in the east to, to Mariupol, uh, and the Donbass, out to western Ukraine, Kiev, Odessa, they are fighting to protect their homeland. And when you fight to protect your homeland, if it's Michigan or, or uh, you know, or Kiev, uh, you're always going to fight harder uh, because it's it's where you're from and you have everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you said something that I want to go back to. You said we've got to stop this somehow. That that the Russians have to be turned back. I I wonder. From your view there on the ground, what what would what would do that? What what should the United States be thinking of doing that maybe it's not? What should the international community be thinking of doing that perhaps it's not? I mean, there's no question that I think all of us have been really surprised and encouraged by what the Ukrainian people themselves have decided to do to to turn the Russians back, but. It's an international issue. Uh, what what else are we are we missing? I guess from from your perspective. Sure. So the very first step, of course, was that Ukraine had to show it would fight, and I think Ukraine has uh, shocked and awed the world in terms of their their willingness to to defend their homeland, to to fight for all that uh, is dear to them. So, you know, that's the first step. Now that Ukraine has done that and they've shown they would fight, the Russians thought they would walk in and 48 hours, you know, occupy the capital. Uh, now that that part has been done, uh, the, the next step was sanctions. And yes, uh, Russia's been hit hard with sanctions. They don't even have their stock market open the entire week because they know uh, that they're, 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 they're... Well, see, and other things are, are worthless now. Just one example, Siberia Bank, which is a Siberian bank, uh, went from $20 a share on the London Stock Exchange to one cent. Wow. Um, so... Um, there's a lot of that going around. The full effect of, not, of, the, of the sanctions has not been felt uh, by the oligarchs or the Russian people. 
uh, although there is growing unrest in Russia as people start to uh, realize that their credit cards are not working, that they can't use their Apple Pay, all these sorts of very practical things that people do every day. So that's step two. Um, the third thing that needs to be done, though, and the U.S. and our and our NATO allies, as well as the rest of the world. I mean, anyone who remotely loves freedom has condemned the, has condemned Russia's actions. Um, the, the third step is, unfortunately, you know, when you're evil Putin, you can't you you can't uh, you know use diplomatic nice speak. You can't send you know <laughs> strongly worded letters from the United Nations. That's mm-hmm. not going to stop a person like this. You have to basically do two things. Either you have to get involved yourself, which the U.S. is not going to put troops in the ground, uh, or NATO, uh, or you have to supply that person uh, with the tools they need to fight their battle. And uh, the West has been particularly helpful in supplying Ukraine with stingers, with javelins. And that's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are achieving uh, the the kill rates of Russians on the battlefield. Uh, I mean, there's there's no way to uh, you know, sugarcoat it. Uh, Ukraine has to kill a lot of Russians to make this war stop. And there's, you know, you can't you can't negotiate your way into it, right? Until there's enough Russians dead, um, then this this war is not going to stop, uh, at least for the Russian side. So, how uh, can the West help with that? Well, we need to continue to supply Ukraine with uh, defensive weaponry that kills tanks, that kills uh, airplanes. Um, we, we maybe need to look at Patriot defense. Uh, it, you know, yeah. this was a, a cutting-edge technology in, in Gulf Storm, uh, Desert Storm One in '91 for Israel, and we saw how it protected Israel from Saddam's Scud missile attacks. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, 30 years ago that was high-tech technology. It's still great technology, and it would still save a lot of Ukrainian lives, civilian lives to have those. Um, you know, over major Ukrainian cities, and that would also eliminate a lot of the. Uh, Russian air advantage, which they have, uh, and they have not uh, used yet, but are likely to do soon. Uh, and I guess, you know, the fourth the fourth step of that would be speaking of the air. Um, you know, in the past, NATO has stepped in in places like Kosovo, in places like Syria, uh, in Iraq, uh, to uh, put it put in place a no fly zone, and you know. Uh, to save lives, you, you, you sacrifice ten to save a thousand, or you know you make the, you have to make these calculations. And it, yes, it, that is a threat of an escalation with Russia. Mm-hmm. But in, in a, uh, we do have a very strong upper hand with Russia. So at the end of the day, the only way you're going to beat down a bully is to have someone stronger than him. So by instituting a no-fly zone over Ukraine, just as we've done in the Middle East, in the Balkans, why would we not do that? In a European nation of 41 million people, that is is being you know brutally attacked uh, by Russia. Yeah. So so before I let you go, Brian, and and I want to thank you up front for for being with us. And this has been a really interesting view from from the inside there. But I want to have you talk just a little about uh, your fleeing of. Ukraine. Um, that's a place that you've been for a long time. Um, and the invasion has really, you know, forced you to, to, to leave, at least at least for now. And I, I want to have you talk just a little about that personal experience. It's something that most of us will never experience in our lives, the idea of running from home to escape, uh, you know, uh, a military invasion. Um, what was that like? 
Okay, as you could imagine, um, you know, leaving behind not only uh, you know family, friends, uh, but uh, you know, an apartment, uh, a, a dacha, a summer house, uh, you know, things like this that you know you uh, you close the door and you don't know when you're going to come back to see it again, see it again, or ever. You know, uh, you don't know if you get back to your home and everything's been stolen and looted. Um, you just don't know. Um, so yeah, living out of a suitcase now for a couple weeks has not been fun uh, by any means. Uh, initially, when the U.S. Embassy uh, and the U.S. government had moved their embassy officials, uh, most of them out of the country, uh, and, and then the, the other remaining part to Western Ukraine to the city of Lviv, uh, I also went at that same time uh, where the American Embassy was. But uh, at the same time, the American Embassy exited into Poland. Uh, I also did the same. Uh, so. Uh, I, uh, living abroad for many years, you, uh, there's the domestic U.S. political debate and then there's, uh, you know, what goes on 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 a foreign policy side of things. But, uh, yeah, sometimes the the State Department warnings can be maybe, you know, um, a bit overbearing, uh, but they're done for a reason and they're based on actual intelligence. And uh, so there's a reason when the State Department says to get out of a country. Americans, even those who have ties and and would stand to lose a lot. Okay, uh, Brian Mefford, uh, a U.S.-born, longtime resident of Ukraine and a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. It was really great to have you here with us on uh, Detroit today as well, and and take care, of course. Thank you. Thanks for the support. Coming up next, we're going to continue this conversation about Ukraine and what's going on there. We're going to keep Aaron Reddish, a history professor at Wayne State University. We'll also get to more of your phone calls and social media comments. Tom in Gross Point, Michael in Detroit. We'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go on social media and make comments there, and uh, we'll get to you as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WBEP. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about uh, Ukraine and Russia uh, today and the invasion that the Russians are still staging there in uh, in uh, in Ukraine and what it means, what it means in terms of Russia, what it means in terms of the international context. Uh, we had hoped to be joined today by uh, Terrell Germain Starr, who's a journalist for Rolling Stone and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. We had him on the line, uh, and we weren't unable to, to keep him. He is on the ground in Ukraine, and as you, can imagine, as you can imagine, it's a little chaotic there, and connections with the outside world are difficult. Terrell is from here in Detroit, though, and we are really anticipating a great conversation with him about his perspective on what he's seeing in Ukraine, given his background here in Detroit. 
uh, he is not going to be able to make it because we cannot reestablish uh, that kind of uh, connection, the, the connection that we need. But we are going to try to reschedule with him. We are really going to make an effort to make sure that we get his voice uh, into the show here and that he gets a, t- a chance to talk with Detroiters, uh, about fellow Detroiters, about what he's seeing there in, in Ukraine. So I want to apologize to listeners uh, who were anticipating that we would have Terrell today. We tried as hard as we could, but uh, keep coming back and we will we will get him to be here with us. We do have uh, with us, though, Aaron Reddish, who's a history professor at Wayne State University who specializes in Soviet and Russian history. We've also got you with us, of course, uh, our listeners uh, on the phone and on uh, social media. Um, I want to go back to uh, to that realm and start with Michael on Twitter, who wants uh, you, Aaron, to talk about the Ukraine is really Russia false narrative from an historical perspective. I think that's an important way to to start thinking about some of these things is what is the truth about Russia's relationship with these republics uh, in Eastern Europe that were part of the Soviet Union uh, and, of course, now are independent. But the history goes back much, much further with, with, with all of them and this idea of the Slavic people in particular and whether they are Russians and should be part of Russia is is part of that that narrative and and part of the tension here. Yes, that's uh, exactly right. And part of it is this tension between what is a nation state and what is nationalism. You know, who can actually say what is a nation? Is it someone from the outside or is it, you know, the individual? Uh, And Putin has said for a long time that Ukraine and Russians are the same people. Uh, And part of his uh, ideology, uh, especially in the latter half of his uh, reign, has been kind of this Russian nationalism and and gathering of the Slavic peoples. You know, Russia and Ukraine do have a shared history, Uh, in part, um, Russian culture comes out of uh, Kiev, what was called Kievan Rus back uh, over a thousand years ago mm-hmm. uh, from 988. Uh, but um, Russia also, Russia is also a different people with a different language, uh, with its own history. And in many ways, Russia uh, came unto its own because uh, Kiev was, uh, when Kiev fell, a lot of the um, monks, actually, who were Orthodox Christians, fled over to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea of, of of what's called Slavophilism, the idea that Slavic people should be uh, are one and that they are distinct from the West, comes out of the 19th century. Um, so the idea that Ukraine is not a nation is, uh, as Brian said, completely false. Uh, they are a shared shared peoples, and that's it. Uh, Putin has said that he is righting the wrongs that were brought on by Lenin in 1917 when he gave a gift to Ukraine uh, by making it uh, basically an autonomous republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not exactly accurate. I mean, Russia, uh, Putin is not good with his history and misrepresents history all the time. Uh, and denying Ukraine its own kind of heritage is simply false. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Tom in Gross Point. Tom, what's on your mind? Hey, Joseph. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, I've been hearing this, uh, you know, headlines since, you know, a week from now, you know, ever since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, you know, they're all like, you know, focusing on like, you know, the uh, well, I, I understand, you know, like the invasion of uh, Ukraine. But they don't, you know, like uh, I feel like the, the 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 media outlet they don't actually like uh, educate the people, like the American people, on, you know, the core issue. Like, what what is what caused the uh, Russian to invade uh, Ukraine? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I understand all they say is like you know they condemn, they're trying to make you know like uh, you know Russia to be you know an evil power, you know, which I understand. You know, that's that's fine. But we need to know, like as an American people, the core cause of the problem maybe that's you know yeah you know to, you know like to understand their point of view you know of the of the you know like if you, if you go on the other side of the world when you know when america invades like other countries you know the, sure. you know obviously american government always have you know uh, their own cause you know As like a reason you sure know, you know, yeah, exactly you know when you invade a country you kill people but they're they're not they're not focusing on killing people and they're like oh we're going there to liberate. We're right. going there to, you know, uh, knock off, you know, dictators. Tom, Tom, it's a great, it's a great question, and and I want to give Aaron Reddish a chance to, to to address it. And and Aaron, I think it's also an opportunity for you to talk about what is going on inside Russia, uh, and what how the Russian people are reacting to to what the Russian government has decided to do as well. But talk first about this, the the motivation here. Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I would say that Putin laid this out in his speech from uh, last week uh, when he announced what he called the military operation. And he basically gave four reasons why Russia was invading. The first was eastward expansion of NATO since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, The idea that, that Ukraine would become part of NATO and part of the EU. The second is he said that the revolution in Ukraine in 2014, the Euromaidan revolution, was illegitimate, that it was fueled by Western support, and especially that uh, Ukraine is proto-fascist and that this revolution was had fascist elements, and this is something that he continues to go back to. Uh, the third thing is he says that the Ukrainian government has been oppressing Russians inside Ukraine and is committing genocide, a word that he has used several times, genocide against Russians in uh, eastern uh, Ukraine, especially Donetsk and Luhansk. And then, as we just said, he said that Ukraine is not a legitimate nation uh, and that this is that he's trying to decommunize the national autonomy given to them by the Bolsheviks. So they increased the um, troops They uh, outside the borders. They tried to um, kind of wheel and deal with with um, with Ukraine and with NATO. And when that failed, they launched the invasion. Uh, so that's the answer to the caller's question. Uh, interestingly, this has not played uh, as well at home as I think Putin thought it would, as the propaganda, the wheels of the propaganda machine, the propaganda car kind of coming off. Um, there have been, uh, for an authoritarian regime, there has been massive resistance inside of Russia um, where with demonstrations daily, especially in Moscow and St. Petersburg, um, with 
over 7,000 people arrested. Mm -hmm. And when someone's arrested, this is that they're detained, but also probably that they're going to lose their job. Uh, We've seen um, protests uh, of over 2,000 scholars uh, in the Far East, in Sakhalin. There was a petition that went up that over 200 people signed. Uh, and, you know, my friends who I've talked to or I've corresponded with in, in Russia are, they say they're aghast that, that they see this as um, scarred by it, that they're ashamed by what's going on. Uh, so Russia has tried to respond by closing down liberal media. Uh, Echo Moskvi and Dojd, which are the two uh, prominent liberal medias, uh, independent media have been closed. Uh, they have increased. Um, they just announced that anyone caught uh, protests in the war would be given up to a six-year sentence in prison. And uh, looks like those measures are going to be increased even more tomorrow. Um, there's been legislation passed in the Duma uh, or going through the Duma uh, tomorrow. Uh, so this is a small, uh, this is a desperate these are desperate measures by a small group of people inside the Kremlin, hmm. um, where you see either Russia's moving, going to move to an authoritarian police state, or there's going to be revolution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Tom, really appreciate the, the call and the questions. I want to quickly go to Michael in Detroit. Uh, Michael, I've only got about a minute and a half left, but but this this idea that you have about Zelensky, the president in Ukraine. Uh, go ahead, Michael. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on the call here. I know you have a limited time and I would have loved to get a response to this, but it's more of an observation that Zelensky as a figure here who, you know, back only in 2019 had something like a 25 percent approval rate. Mm -hmm. His political party was going through a major corruption scandal. Just this kind of idea where he was, you know, effectively a TV star made president, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of a joke almost now sort of pushed into this like mythic heroic figure (laughs) and kind of how that's damaging. Yeah. Um, kind of the situation, you know, the propaganda, excuse me, yeah. like to the point about maybe the Russian propaganda machine kind right. of wheels falling off. Uh, uh, Michael, I do want to get uh, Aaron a chance to, to respond, but I really I, I love that, that point that you're making there. Aaron, what do we make of Zelensky at this point? Yeah, it's a great point that uh, people dismissed him uh, when he was elected as a comedian, and yet he is a unifying figure. Um, right, uh, a Jewish, uh, a Jewish politician uh, in a largely Orthodox uh, um, country. Uh, he's able to, uh, he, you know, he can bridge both uh, Ukrainian and Russian national identities as well. Uh, yeah, he has risen up to the challenge. It's it's really inspiring. It's and it's kind of surprising, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's very much so. Yeah. Okay, uh, Aaron Reddish, uh, history professor at Wayne State University. It's always great to have you here with us uh, on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for helping us to understand what is going on in Ukraine. Thanks. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow, and I'm going to talk with journalist and author Johan Hari about his new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again, something that is challenging Lots of us these days. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.